This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock, which means two minutes past the end of Tim's song, which means it's Tim's show. You're on 3RRR, you're on Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhall. And I'm John Ford. Good morning, John. We had a little bit of rock and roll feedback there, didn't we? We did. <laughs> a little bit of rock and roll feedback indeed. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, that's just us being rock and roll. <laughs> I just think, you know, you're rock, I'm roll. And Tim has come in and saved the day from our <laughs> feedback. Hey, um, I was going to start off with um, a couple of things. One was a um, one was a bit of a, a tribute to young Timothy because young Timothy is just it's astonishing. Amazing. It's just amazing. And once again, he's risen above you know a general kind of level of hoi polloi. And I don't know the diversity in that last hour. I was thinking, can you pin this man down to? To one style of music. Well, I, I was very interested. He has a had a um, a record of something about Australian funk, psychedelica, and so on, with a lot of cheese on it and um, a lot of <laughs> cheese music. And I'm really interested in getting. Uh, yeah, it's probably just behind you there, Anthem. I might uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll just mm. grab it. Hey, now we we you, a couple of things people may have noticed. It's um, it's not the time you think it is. Hmm. It's actually Dale Timings. Exactly. So just for those people out there who are thinking, gosh, what are they doing on? Mm-hmm. It's, it's eight. 
It's and you not. really are as tired as you think you yes, are. Yes, because they've stolen your hour. Mm-hmm. They've taken it. They've taken it from you. Summer has taken it from you. Well, no, they. Who? who I don't know who they are. Oh. Who do you think they are? Oh, conspiracies. No, too early for a cons- <laughs> Way too early for a conspiracy. Yeah, no, it feels early enough. I, 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 we have to wait six months now mm-hmm. till we get our hour back. <laughs> We're getting this stunning little bit of feedback. I'm going to try something different for a second. It's just a, a strange little piece of feedback happening on, on one piece of equipment in the studio there. Everybody, so apologies for that. We're back and uh, we're, we're doing well. What do you think? What do you think, well, John? Here I am. Here I am back without feedback. We well, love we it. We love it. <laughs> hey, now, it is four minutes past nine. Uh, yes, and yesterday the doggies did win. And isn't that a sensationally good thing? It is. It is. And the doggies didn't take our hour from us, but they won. No, no, it was wonderful, won. finally, oh, to have right. a team to barrack for. <laughs> It's been years since I've actually barracked for a team in the grand final because, you know, it's oh, Geelong this and Hawthorne that and Sydney this and whatever. Oh, I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> spoken like a spoken like a hard time, long-term Tiger supporter there. Um, um, I've got to say, for the first part of um, the uh, later half of September, I was a little bit out of sorts. I didn't really know what to do because usually my team's there. But <laughs> Spoilt. Oh, we just thought it's handy to give someone else a go. Spoilt like the rest. No, normal of transmission will be, uh, you know, <laughs> return next year. But uh, oh, wasn't it sensational? Mm-hmm. Cheering, up, cheering for the doggies. Love it. Love it. That was fantastic. Anyway, we're going to do a song, Sons of the West, but neither of us know the words apart from Sons of the West. So we thought we'd just we leave it there. The sons of the... No, no, it goes like this. Sons of the West. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> hey, we got. Um, Terry Allen's going to join us, we hope. For a dive report. Yeah, yeah. from Mount Gambia, for a dive report. A very, well, yeah, a bit of a kind of a discussion about what cool diving is around at the time. At the moment, um, this time of the year, you're kind of easing out of winter. Mm. So it's the time. Mm. Anyway, um, later on, after that. Yeah, then we're going to have Oliver Edwards in the studio, chef, local Melbourne chef, and um, uh, goodfishbadfish.com.au website um, man talking about sustainable seafood. And what we're going to... The question I guess we're going to tackle today is a really big one, but it's how like, how are we going to meet our future seafood demands? You know, what, what, what future us, future Australia um, demands in terms of our we want to eat seafood, um, how do we do that sustainably? Oh, How do we wow, do that yeah. without stuffing the environment? Yeah. That's our big question. So we're going to explore that a little. And, and I, I think the trajectory is up, isn't it? Oh. You know, in terms of st- seafood intake. Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah. you just think about it. I mean, we're, having, we're predicted to have a 60% increase just in population by, mm. say, 2050, mm. right? So even if our seafood demand remains flat, yeah, that's absolutely. a 60% yeah. increase. Yeah. But if we actually want more, we actually per capita want to eat more, through the roof. Yeah. And that's not just happening in Australia. That's happening all around the world. Oh, you good. Know, more people want more fish. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Where's that fish going to come from? So Oliver's coming in a bit after half past. And then um, I've been delving into some interesting things. It's, it's, it's a bit of science. I don't know what you'd call it. decision-making science, I suppose, is the thing. And where what you do with marine protected areas and the conservation of the marine environment, there's all kinds of these, this, this really interesting kind of science being looked at how you make trade-offs. 
between the kinds of things that decide where and when you put your marine protected areas. Mm-hmm. You know, like not necessarily when you've got them in, mm-hmm. but obviously if you're somewhere in the government, this is a global kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look at a little a little piece um, in Indonesia, a little piece in Chile, and then have a look at the global situation with marine protected areas. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So a bit of a bit of a hodgepodgey day. Hey, got a bit of weather. Yes, I do. Today is got to be somewhat lovely. I think. <laughs> Somewhat. Um, this is just my this Of is course, my if call. you're a Footscray supporter, it's well, stunning. Yeah, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what the weather is, does it? Um, because there's a top of 23 degrees, and that's fantastic. No. Are you that kidding? is fantastic. What? 23 degrees today. Where did that come from? The downside, and there are a few, uh, is that it's windy, damn windy. Uh, 40 kilometre an hour northerlies, I think, at the moment. Uh, 40 to 60 kilometres an hour. So we've got a big, big northerlies growing. There's a 90% chance of rain of 10 to 20 mils, and all that's going to be happening late this afternoon. So heavy falls exceeding 30 millimetres possible in the evening. So enjoy a lovely windy day. Get the the dust and the leaves up your nose. And then, um, yeah, head inside. Uh, with a warm drink as the um, the front comes through, and yep, we get a lot, a lot of rain. So, hang on, when is that happening? Do we know? Uh, I think that's happening late afternoon late. into the evening. Right. So, we're talking about when the sun goes down, really. Right. Yeah. Right. But but get this, get this. Tomorrow, sixteen. Yeah, showers. Okay. Whatever. Yeah, seventeen Tuesday showers. Yeah. Back to normal, and yeah. then. And no. then it's the hey, no no no. Then nineteen on Wednesday, getting a little better. Twenty four on Thursday, twenty six on Friday. Oh rubbish! You're yeah, I'm this not up. lying. I'm not Are you lying. So we, this this is spring. You made that up. I'm not making seriously. It up. I'm it's not making twenty six. Twenty six. I think twenty six to twenty eight. Oh. That's just oh. the perfect temperature for me. Oh, spring I'm looking spring. forward to Friday. Spring into spring. Mm. Mm. That is sensational. <laughs> I still don't believe you. You do look like you tell the the truth, though. (laughs) Music is sound in melodic or harmonic combinations, whether produced by voice or instrument. Three triple R. That's right. Indeed, you are on Three Triple R's Radio Marinara. It is actually about 13 and a half minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. Uh, which is 9 o'clock, which is Eastern Summer Standard Time because Daylight Saving started last night, in case you missed out, and they've stolen our hour. Mm. That was the Ramones before, before that little message uh, that'll wake you up on a Sunday morning, Spider-Man. And um, speaking of waking up on Sunday mornings, way over in another state where there is no electricity and a lot of rain, Terry Allen joins us from beautiful South Australia. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Anthony. How are you? Oh, I'm very good, thank you. And have they got the power... It's wild and windy here. Yeah, right. Have they got the power back on over there? Um, yeah, they've got the little possums running on the treadmill. So, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, no, we're okay. Now, John and I were just talking before about the weather is... Um, well, it's a bit wild today, to be honest. It's going to gust up to 40 knots. But during, it's going to be 23, and then by the end of this week, it's going to be 24 and 26 or something bizarre like that. And so spring is definitely here. So... What you know, is it gonna are we getting close to diving in Victoria time? You know, can can the winders like me get out the gear and get ready? <laughs> well, of course for those of us that are hardcore, we've been diving all year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, no, it's uh it's actually quite good until we had the wild weather and the rain, um, with uh had amazing visibility. Um in fact I had just saw a report just the other day, uh Luke uh, from uh, Red Boats um, put up a nice little video on Facebook and uh, beautiful uh, conditions. The water's still about 13 in the bay and 13 in the ocean. So 
maybe 14. Um, so this is a time of year where the water temperatures are the same between the two. And uh, but they had uh, common big pot of common dolphins and whales when they were out. Oh, nice! Pretty special. Where was that? Where was that, Terry? Um, Just out in the um, what's called the ship's graveyard area. So it's out through the heads and just sort of off um, Barwon Heads area. Mm. Yeah. Oh, lovely! Now, but of course you've escaped it all. You're over. Before we get into what how to get yourself ready for for spring diving, you're over in South Australia doing the caves, are you? Yes, yeah. So yeah. that's another thing we do a bit more in winter and do the caves and the water temperature is actually warmer here. <laughs> I bet. Um, yeah, but I was looking at some beautiful fossilised uh, sea urchins yesterday in one of the caves. So a slight marine link there, and yeah, very pretty. Wow. So, so what do sea urchins leave behind? Can you still see? Can you see their spines, or is it just sort of the yeah, you know, the in, yeah, inner test or spines? Yeah. Sorry. Wow. Yeah, you see spines sort of all over the floor, and yeah. um, and then you get the whole test. You can get, like, beautiful fossilised, the whole test just sort of sitting, you know, as a round ball on, you know, on a wall or something. Yeah. Wow, beautiful. Um, and if, if you see a few sort of scallop shells and bits and pieces like that, yeah. Now, if you were thinking, gosh, I've, I've been hibernating over winter, I've, I've you know... I haven't really got the dive gear out. Uh, you know, what, what, and you're going to head into the water perhaps for the first time for a... Oh, could be a couple of months. What do you, what do you want to yeah. think about? Okay, so I always recommend, especially for Melbourne, we're very lucky. We've got some very nice, easy shore dives and, and pier dives. Um, so I would definitely start with something like that. Um, but gear, and so, you know, just to re check your skills um you can also of course you know get a dive master instructor and you know if you're a bit rusty and really need to go through your skills and that can be done in in a pool before you head to the bay um and then gear wise um really important of course to check everything i know people sometimes store their gear in garages and find you know there's a spiders crawled into their <laughs> regulator mouthpiece or something um but yeah get it give it a good uh, good check through um and the really important thing is something like regulators which you know of course are your you know life source um even if you haven't used them for a while and you might say oh well i got them serviced a year ago and i hardly used them the problem is that um, with little use, the, the seats of the first stage and the second stage can actually get like an indent in them. And so when you go to use them after a while, they can, you know, because of that, they're compressed, the seat, it can actually free flow. So, you know, you jump in the water and you've got a free-flowing regulator. Which and, and, of course, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen until you're a little bit further under the water. It could even just, you know, be fine on the surface, but then when you get down below. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So another reason why it's good to do that check, you know, in shallow water, um, you know, down, we, we go down just the south road at Brighton, there's a nice little reef there, a few little pinky snapper and a few bits and pieces. But, I mean, somewhere like Lake Gary is fantastic because now we're just getting the most amazing number of nudibranchs down there. It's, um, yeah, it's an incredible place. So, yeah, and um, the other thing is just to get, you know, everything else checked out, your BCs, make sure, you know, they're holding pressure and uh, if you're wearing a dry suit, make sure the valves are all working and, yeah, so you get yourself and your gear all ready and, um, and get back into it. Bit of a spring clean before you get in the water. Yeah, exactly. 
And what about, if, you know, you talked about, you know, if you're, you haven't been in the water a bit, even if you've been diving for, for a number of years but you spend a, a couple of months out, it's probably a good idea to ease yourself back into it with a pretty easy dive just in case because you never know, your fitness might have changed, you might have put on a bit of weight, you know, winter, we all, you know, I don't know about, well, you wouldn't, but I, you know, I'm not suggesting that I've porked up over winter, but, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, with if... If you have put on a little bit of winter weight, I mean, it can affect, obviously, your buoyancy and how much weight you need and, and all that kind of things. And, yeah, and just, I think it's it's fitness a little bit. Um, it's also even just what we call muscle memory. Um, so I know myself, like, with cave diving, which obviously is very gear intense, just things, you know, we've got to clip things off. And, and you know, when you've been diving for a while and day after day, it's all easy. But if you haven't done it for a few months, it's amazing quite simple things can be can be a bit tricky like anything i guess but um yeah so it's good to to ease into it and um but yeah talking of blake gary also i think you guys have been chatting to the guys at operation sponge yeah. where they've been moving mm. the um the sponges from one wall and gluing them on and i believe that's going very well and uh and yeah it's uh blake gary's just been an amazing spot as i said it's just uh, the species there now are just incredible um, so, yeah, there's plenty to see while you're checking out your skills and checking out your gear. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, of course, there's plenty of good, excellent boat dives and beautiful the beautiful sponge walls as well as the wrecks. And, um, you know, if you want to grab a bunch of scallops or um, a crayfish, the crayfish season, season opens in November sometime, I think. So, yeah, of course, uh, yeah. of course it does too. Plenty so you to get your licence renewed and make sure you and then get, get ready for when they're ready. Yeah, nice. Yeah, hey, yeah. and when you, of course, the nice thing about these shallow dives is um, while you're floundering around trying to work out, you know, what your weight belt does again and how you get up and down yeah. in the water column, um, it's shallow enough that you can see all that cool stuff anyway, you know, all those sponges, yeah. et cetera. So, you know, you know even if yeah. you sit up on the surface, it's going to be yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, even, you know, even going snorkeling, you know, there's fantastic, you know, Ricketts Point and places like that that are very shallow. And when the viz is good, um, I mean, the viz has been great, but I think I haven't been in the ocean for a couple of weeks, so it's probably with a bit of rain and wind and that. But, you know, it can settle out pretty quickly. But, yeah, you can see a lot in quite shallow. And, you know, with the families, I suppose the school holidays is over now, but... Um, I mean, snorkeling is a fantastic way to get kids um, obviously interested in marine science and, uh, and um, yeah, getting them interested in diving in the future. So kids need to be 12 years old to learn to dive, um, but we can do fun stuff in the pool called bubble makers. So hmm. they're eight years old and they're really become very popular now Do you know, Kids have birthday party things, and I think, oh, when I was a kid, I would love to have done that. Oh, no <laughs> yeah. way. And I'll sit in the bottom of the pool and pass around a, a regulator and, like, breathe out of it or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. that you is know, so no, cool. They all have their own little gear. They, oh. they have their little baby tanks and baby, <laughs> uh, baby BCs, and, oh, they just take off because, of course, you know, yeah, it's cool. like skiing. Yeah, exactly. No fear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I must say, actually, I did something very similar for an eight-year-old birthday um, oh, in a, in a bathtub. Cool. No, in a bathtub. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, so uh, hey, Tori, we, we should let you probably uh, itching to get back in a cave somewhere and find some yep. fossil of something. Hey, so thanks yep. very much for joining us um, this morning from whatever ungodly hour it is in South Australia. <laughs> no worries, mate. Okay, Pleasure. cheers. See, See you, you, Terry. Bye.
Terry Allen, Radio Marinara dive reporter there. Remember to yeah. check for spiders <laughs> in the mouthpiece of your dive gear before jumping in this spring. That's my, the important message we yes, got from that. Yes, my favourite message from Terry. Yes, absolutely, because that is the worst feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially oh. at about 18 metres. Oh, what's that? Oh, oh, a spider on the tongue. Um, yeah, a oh, spider would know, but imagine being a spider. Oh. Well, that'd be the only spider it had gone to 80 metres. Like, what would that actually? <laughs> just think about that. I think a spider would be okay. I don't think the pressure difference would change no, a spider. A spider would be fine. Yeah. Well, have you seen spiders when they when on the bottom of pools and they they get their own air bubbles? Yeah. around them so they can breathe. Well, in this case, it'd have all the air from your mouth. Oh no, if they spat it out, it'd still be fine. And it'd go on an adventure. It'd be like Finding Nemo. <laughs> and then, of course, because the spider, well, hang on, the, the air bubble would be at the pressure down there, so it would change as it went to the surface. Yeah. So the spider might get bent. <laughs> We know what. So you got to look after the spiders. Look after okay? the spiders, you know, guys. You don't. You don't want to send. Them. You the last thing we need is a cohort of dead spiders. spiders you know, like in the, in the bay, it's going to wreck everybody's <laughs> spring. Look, we want to talk about seafood, and um, I guess in, in many ways, food security. As in, where in the future are we going to get our seafood from to meet the predicted demands? Because by 2050, we're going to have nine billion people on this planet. How much bigger is that than what we have now? Well, how many have we got now? Six billion at the moment? Yeah, so right. It's quite about, a bit I think it's about a six. So they predicted that we're going to need 60% more protein Goodness me. in the world yeah, right. by 2050. So okay. somehow we're going to, have to feed the world. Yeah. You know, this is just to keep up, you know, with yeah, yeah. what just, just so people can, can live and get on with their things. Um, when 60% more protein. Right, that's a lot, that's 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 a lot more. It is, a lot um, more. and that holds for fish as well. And that holds for seafood. So Australia still follows that as well. We're going to have forty million people by twenty fifty mm. around those sort of those mm. sort of numbers. And again, that's a you know a, probably more than sixty percent increase. So you know we're going to have more people. Mm. And so the t- mo- talking about Melbourne by uh, eight million by fifty twenty fifty. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Mm. So eight million mm. of those will mm. be here. So I guess if we have more people, they're going to probably want to eat seafood. A lot of people do mm. eat seafood around the world. Mm. Um, and so even if we keep our consumption rates completely flat, we're still going to need 60% more seafood, Yeah, right? If we actually increase the amount of seafood that we, we eat, and the, it's predicted that the, in China in particular, they're going to double their demand, go from 20 no. kilos a person to 40 kilos a person by 2050. So, wow, I mean, we're blowing it out, right? The efficient. demand there is huge. Yeah. Now, the world will probably find a way to do that somehow. But the big question is, how can we do that sustainably? So how can we do that without actually stuffing up the systems on which we depend? Mm. And that's our big question for today. So who we have in the studio is Oliver Edwards. Good morning. Good morning. Um, local chef and uh, goodfishbadfish.com.au co-founder. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Very I'm doing good. well. Very good. So I guess we're taking, we're taking this question of how do we feed the world. Um, from, it, it's not just a simple question of, you know, how do we produce seafood? It has a lot to do with, um, with individual, individual choice and the, the culture of, of eating seafood. And I guess that's sort of um, one of the big things we'll be talking about today. Yeah, and the question that really interests me, I suppose, is is how do the choices we make in Australia affect this this question of, of of can we increase our demand as we expect to? Um, 
where is it going to come from and are there factors in Australia in particular that might limit our ability to do that mm. sustainably? Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, let's go from, from the start. I mean, look, we are a rich country. Australia is a rich country. And at the moment, we import 70% of the seafood that we eat, right? So we import a lot of frozen white fish. We import a lot of tinned things like tuna yeah. and sardines and so on. And, I mean, as a rich country... We can just keep on buying from the from the market. Where do they, just out of interest, if 70% of our seafood comes into the country predominantly in broad terms, where does it come from? Most of it comes from Asia. Yeah, okay. So the way Australia, Australia has you know, its seafood import-export is that we, um, because we don't produce a, a lot of seafood, but what we do produce tends to be very high value. So we sell a lot of our things like our abalones and our, ro- our rock lobster is actually the, um, the, the biggest, our biggest export mm-hmm. seafood. Um, lobster and, uh, and prawns and things like this. Uh, we send them to the high, high-end markets of, of Asia, um, Japan, Hong Kong mostly, and uh, we import cheap stuff. Yeah. So we import cheap frozen stuff. So and, and the prawns you mentioned there are a fantastic example. Yeah, we, we catch and farm prawns in Australia, but for the most part, we send our high-value, very high-quality, sustainably-produced prawns overseas where people are more willing to pay for them, and in turn we take into Australia low-value, very cheap prawns to satisfy bulk demand. Goodness me. Yeah. Mm. So hence, as you're saying, we have an extraordinary ability to potentially influence the the sustainability of seafood elsewhere. Mm. If 70% of what is coming in, then what we choose to do here can really influence that. It's one of those situations where you really can actually influence the sustainability of somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, and Mm. if our demand is going to be increased as it will we need to consider the effect that that's going to have on local seafood production but also global seafood production and markets mm. well i think it's important that, that seafood security is is not necessarily a huge issue for australia but it is a massive issue for for some of the the world's um, I guess less developed and, and poorer nations that are really, really highly dependent on on seafood. And I mean, the three quarters of the countries. This is an amazing statistic. Three quarters of the countries where fish is their main protein source are either poor or food deficient. So actually, food is more important in in countries that. that I'm sorry, fish is more important in countries where they don't have a lot of food. So it opens this question: if if we we have this big buying power and be able to buy what we want as Australians because we're a wealthy country on that global market, I mean, at what cost does it, does it have? Well, I mean, that's, yeah, so can we not just buy more seafood, John? Yeah, well, well of course we can. <laughs> I guess that's We're good. Australians, <laughs> our demand's going to increase, yeah, we, we want more, more seafood. Yeah. Can't, can't we just buy it from overseas? <laughs> well, I guess, yes, we, of course we can, but the, then is, can we do that sustainably? And if we're, if, if we're, say, buying, you know, one of our major trading partners is Indonesia, say, and over 60% of, of Indonesia's protein comes from fish. But because if we're going to be buying more and more, say, from Indonesia, are we effectively taking the food off the table of local people there? Because we're By paying driving more, up the price, perhaps. Driving up the price, we're, paying, we're willing to pay more for it. A dwindling supply, we're the ones who are willing to pay more for it. So who loses out? Those that don't have the money. Okay. So maybe that's not the best idea. I'm not quite sure. So what other options are available to us then? And I suppose the big one, the, the stated sort of saviour it's been, it's been thrown out there is aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Fish is, farming. Is fish yep. farming. Um, we were discussing earlier, and a lot of people might not realise, but 45% of the seafood consumed globally is currently produced by aquaculture. So mm. we farm nearly half the seafood. It's not, a, it's not all wild. 
anymore, and it's been that case for, for a few years now, mm. can't we just farm more fish? Well, yeah, it w- w- certainly is. And I think there's a lot of capacity there to, uh, to farm more fish, I mean, without a doubt. But I did a little bit of research and I looked into the top 10 species that are farmed around the world. We have to point out that John's been preparing lectures <laughs> recently and <laughs> so so he's statistics got statistics right at his fingertips. Um, <laughs> and what amazed me is that six of the top 10 species farmed around the world are carp. Different varieties of carp. The world eats tens of millions of tons of carp every year. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not in this country. Not definitely not in this country. So most of that production is in China um, and across um, Asia, in India as well. Is that because they are an extraordinarily hardy species that pretty much kind of you know you can throw anything at them and they'll grow? And an efficient one to farm. So while we might not have a taste for carp in Australia. As John mentioned earlier, we're talking about countries where seafood protein is really important to the diet of people there. You need to farm efficiently if you're going to farm at all. So you need uh, low, you need high yield for low input, yeah. and that's what carp represents. It's a really they grow a, fast. It's an efficient source fish. of protein. They grow anywhere. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's like a kind of a weedy species in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're considered a weed here in Australia, and, yeah. and they're removed as a noxious pest, and then just dumped. You know, I mean, you know, I think, actually, I think it goes into garden fertilizer. Well, it goes into garden. Well, mm. in the past, it's been. Yeah, yeah, it, sorry, yes. in the past, yeah. it's been dumped. There's some garden fertilizer. I, I, I'm not I'm sure. I'm still not sure that. that's a very high use. Yeah, how how will they use that? that? Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's sort of you know, we don't have a food security issue in in Australia. Yeah. I guess that, that, that that's what it comes down to. Um, in a lot of countries, they they need they need that protein, and they're going to utilize that, um, and so they're going to find the most efficient way. So, and here again, we've got the distinction between the global and the local seafood production because, as we've just said, globally we're farming for efficiency and we're farming species like carp and we're farming for protein yield. In Australia, we have aquaculture too. And again, the aquaculture is high-value species predominantly. We're farming we're farming Atlantic salmon. We're farming high-value prawns, uh, kingfish down in South Australia. Abalone. The abalone, the, uh, the tuna ranching down in Port Lincoln. So we're farming high-value species, again, often for export, and we're not farming for yield or efficiency. We have a very different purpose, a very different need. Yeah. And do you guys think that over time that, that you know, effectively market forces will, will force us to do either both or to switch that focus of the economics of the industry from away from high-value to, to yield? Well, I think the economics are certainly driving a need for greater efficiency mm. and there, there isn't a sector of the aquaculture industry that isn't continually, continuously improving itself and striving for efficiency because costs demand it. Mm. Um, but I think the limiting factor in Australia is taste. Yeah, and right. to, to claim that we would suddenly switch all our aquaculture to farmed carp and tilapia isn't... isn't Realistic, mm. because what, that's what not is, what we want to eat. And, and I'm, so I'm going to ask you this question as, as a chef. Then, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what what is the problem with the taste? Like, what is the thing that you think doesn't work with our palate with, say, tilapia or with carp? Surprisingly, they probably fit into the category of what Australians like to eat, which mm-hmm. is relatively bland, 
soft, white-fleshed fish. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what Australians like to eat. But yeah. um, there's a lot of stigma around carp. Um, because we because we've called it a pest species, yeah, basically. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and because it's low value, um, and it's not. It doesn't. It's not. It's, you know, sometimes you know people will say, "Oh, there's some of those bottom feeder fish," and I know it's not a bottom feeder, but there's some, you know that taste muddy. That you know, like there's none of that. It's actually just a bland white flesh fish. And farm poorly, maybe it would taste yeah. muddy, but sh- we have the ability to mm. farm yeah. even even these muddy fish in ways to ensure that they don't. Mm. Taste Damn, they like get big that. too. <laughs> those things, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, huh. w- one of the one of the issues with low value um, species. I mean, they're, they're low value, so therefore they're not they're not um, you know handled well. They're not presented in a way that is you know makes for a good meal. You know, and mm. this is some of the issues, yeah. and the same issues with our wild catch. You know, some of these fish that we catch, and and um, because they're only worth fifty cents a kilo, no one's going to take the time to ensure that that fish is in good quality. It's really you know it's it, yeah. and it's cooked up well, all that sort of stuff. And so it tends to reinforce itself where the high value species are, 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 um, are kept you know are handled well and in really good condition. Low value species aren't. So it just reinforces that system. So let's talk wild fisheries then. We've mm-hmm. talked about the global market. Can we just buy more? We've talked about aquaculture. Can we just farm more? What about our wild fisheries in Australia? Can we increase what we're catching? Mm. Well, the wild catch um, in Australia has been on the decline for the last 12 years. So we're actually catching less and less fish. And one of the main reasons for that is because we are sustainably managing them. And this is one of these, this is kind of one of these ones that's hard to sort of to, to understand, but it's, well, it's hard to swallow, I guess, more so, is that, um, you know, to sustainably manage a lot of these, these fish stocks, we need to catch less in the short term so that we catch more in the long term. Mm. And this is, this is the really difficult thing to, to put, um, to enforce, or at least even to, to, to sell in a lot of countries where um, maybe they don't have good management regimes to say, okay, we're going to come and manage, but it means that you're all going to have a short-term cost um, and catch less fish. And you see this with the big tuna fisheries at the moment is that everyone knows that they need to slow down and they've been talking about it for 10 years, but when it comes to the crunch and like, okay, good, we're, we're hitting the, the level in which you need guys to slow down and take them, they don't want to do it because of short-term, short-term cost. But in Australia, mm. we've got the strong governance, right? We've got a strong governance that can go, all right, no, you just, you just, you just can't catch that much. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of pain there, don't get me wrong, a lot of pain with fishermen and, and, and so on, but, but we actually can do that. So we've had a decline in our catch to ensure the future sustainability. That isn't necessarily happening everywhere else. But we do talk about global fisheries as having reached capacity. We, mm. can't, we can't increase the amount of wild fish that we take globally mm. to any great extent. Yep. Yeah, th- that's, yeah, that's So if that's true. the case and Australian wild fisheries production is in fact dropping, mm. decreasing... In order to maintain itself to the future. In order to maintain yeah, yeah. it. So we, but what you're saying is we're not going to get the yield from there in the short term. We're not going to get the increase in the, yes. in the short term, I guess. But... Yeah. Maybe there are areas of of what we do currently catch that we can utilise better, more efficiently. Mm. Again, talking about efficiencies, there are things that we catch and don't eat. Mm. So the the really great example is is sardines, and a lot of people probably don't realise that we catch more sardines in Australia than any other species in gross tonnage. We huh. catch a lot of sardine, but most of them? it doesn't go to human consumption. No, tell me it's not cats. Some of it's cats. In South Australia, who catch... The South Australians catch a huge amount of sardine. 90% of it goes to Port Lincoln to feed feed. the tuna. 
Mm. So we're talking about feeding fish. Wow. So in terms of the, the inefficiency, in terms of feeding the world, what we're doing is we're catching the, the wild fish, and this is the whole issue with, with, yeah, yeah. with the kind of aquaculture to or feed, the kind of fish farming fish. we do in Australia is that we're catching fish to feed fish. And so in terms of food security, that's a, that's a terrible thing because we are actually losing, losing fish there. And there's, they throw a lot around conversion ratios and they're certainly getting better, but in the end there is no way to you know, mm-hmm. to turn fish into more fish. Like, it's just not really happening. Yeah. And it's money and it's international markets, but it's taste as well. And mm. people would rather eat tuna than sardines. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Even though the price difference is... Sardines are But there's a huge price difference there, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah, but yeah. We'll, still, we'll still tend to pay for that. And again, as John mentioned earlier, if we don't value it, we don't treat it very well, and in turn, mm. it's not a very good product. Mm. So... A lot of the sardine fisheries have been bulk fisheries for feed for the tuna and therefore the fish hasn't been treated very well. So it's actually probably not even been fit for human consumption mm-hmm. in many cases. So, Oliver, how do we create a demand for these kind of things? I mean, we're also talking about fish like leather jacket, which are just kind of weird, you know, and people just don't yeah. know, know what to do with them. I mean, how... Is, is, they've got bones. Yeah, they've got They're bones really bony. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and this is, I think, where, where you and I are driving, at least, is that we do need to increase the demand for some of the less familiar species and, in turn, hope that they will sort of increase in value a bit and they'll start getting treated better by fishermen and then they'll be even more delicious and so on and so forth. I think partly it just comes down to people being a little bit more adventurous. Mm. Australian seafood consumers, as I've probably said, time and again on this show go for the same let's say half dozen species again and again we like our snapper and our salmon and our flathead <laughs> and our shark. gummy yeah. and we we don't try unfamiliar species uh, particularly the the smaller oilier schooling species but isn't the onus also on either the the wholesalers or the the, the, the retailers or, or, or the chefs or whatever to actually present those fish in, in a way that is actually i mean you, you can't get those fish in a lot of places right? i was going to say too, so you need, yeah, need to be presented in a, in a way or you know they actually need to you know maybe they need to fill it sardines or maybe they need you, to fill it um tommy ruffs i don't know so when you're at the market you know the vic market for example yeah. and you're talking mm. to the fish guy and you go what is that what do i do with it instead of saying, I don't know, they've got a kind of an answer. Yeah, yeah, that's leather jacket. It's mm, wacky yeah. looking, but, you know, it's really tasty. Mm, you yeah. just And it's it like this thing that you're already yeah, familiar yeah, with. This right. is gurnard and it's just like flathead. This is mm. mullet and treated right. It's going to be light and juicy and delicious. So part of the part of the solution lies then, it sounds like, lies with the, those who sell the fish mm. and those who prepare the fish, like yourself. Yeah. And those who have a voice so if every time you pick up the the saturday paper its recipe is for snapper well you can't really argue with people for going and asking for snapper at the fish counter Mm, mm. there is a need one to to have more sort of engagement and more recipes for some of the unfamiliar species but also i think for consumers to realize that the species stated in the recipe isn't the only one you could use Mm. and again that's a conversation with the fishmonger yeah I'm looking for a fish to barbecue, you know, saying that rather than saying I'm looking for some snapper. Mm. I'm looking for a fish to barbecue and what would you recommend? Mm. And and hopefully they will have that knowledge. But um, certainly your website, Oliver, will also help with that kind of thing in terms of converting different fish of of different types. And that's what we try and do, yeah. So goodfishbadfish.com.au, right? Which will help you make a decision about uh, 
what species you can choose, some unfamiliar ones you can maybe try, and which cooking methods are more suitable to yeah. them. Yeah, mm-hmm. great. Well, let's um, let's just recap. Um, I guess our question initially was, how do we meet Australia's future seafood demand? And we talked about um, when we we can buy from the local market, we can farm, or we can catch more. And it sounds like that anything in the future is going to involve a, all, all three of those. Yeah. yeah. And the, the big thing that, that's come out from, from you, Oliver, is that we actually need to uh, probably start eating different things. We need to eat a broad, a more broader variety, whether they be wild catch or whether they be farmed. We actually start, need to start eating fish. Yeah, that in both, those, just, in both yeah. those categories, we do have this interesting scenario where... So eating, eating carp answer. and eating sardines or eating eat leather jackets. So yeah. that's what it really does come down to. And I think also to do that sustainably, there also needs to be greater sort of transparency within those systems to know where some of that fish comes from. I yeah. think that that's incredibly important because, you know, we look at bassa and I think Bron often has a go at the, the old Vietnamese mm. bassa that you've seen. In, but, um, you know, that could come from a horrible little, little you know, uh, green pond, but it can also come from some, some really good, well-managed, sustainable farms in, in Vietnam. And they, they may come maybe side by side, but yeah. they end up being thrown into the same box and they and end up being completely undifferentiated yeah. Yeah, in the yeah. marketplace. So, so that's that, it's the food origin too. stuff that's just as important as absolutely, anything else. Absolutely, absolutely. So if we want to start making those choices. So, so yeah. try new things, ask lots of questions, and let's see what the future holds. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> <laughs> And as John's been saying all show, there's three things you need to know. The Doggies won the grand final. Daylight savings have started and it's going to be 23 today and 26 on Friday. That's it. So that's pretty much the summary of the week. It's all on the up. (laughs) Um, A couple of quick things. Just wanted to (laughs) remind people that the... Uh, what are they called? The Department of Environment, La- Land, Water and Planning, DELP, otherwise known as DELP, currently have uh, that consultation paper out on the Marine and Coastal Act. We had Professor Jeff West got in a couple of weeks back to talk about that. And I think you can go to haveyoursay.delp.vic.gov.au if you want to kind of register your views on the future management of the coasts in Victoria, which is a little segue into the management of marine protected areas. And I've been kind of delving into um, a bit of a, a bit of global work that's been happening around decisions. And you make decisions all the time, you know, um, and often in the absence of any information and data. And we just had a great conversation then about the kind of decisions that consumers make yep. for fish. But on the big scale around the world, a lot of people make decisions about where to put their marine protected areas. And there's this really interesting thing that's been happening about different groups um, looking into the science and the impact of um, actually changing what drives those decisions, what inputs go into those decisions. So there's actually a bias in putting marine protected areas into areas that are least threatened. Now, this is just kind of an accident. and Is that just, because they're the prettiest? Um, <laughs> no, it's actually used because they're easiest to do that with. Okay. Because there's less kind of hassle because yep. they're usually threatened because there's a process happening yep. like fishing, mining, coastal towns, yep. whatever it might be. So anyway, this group um, from uh, the University of East Anglia and the University of Queensland did a test where they different, they looked at conservation priorities between two management strategies, avoiding protecting high threat areas, mm-hmm. so going for the kind of easier wins because you can get lots of it, there's less um, controversy or protecting areas at risk and in the um, in the Sulu Sulawesi region, the heart of the Coral Triangle they looked at um, conservation targets and found they can't solely be met with win-win areas which is the lower priority areas mm-hmm. um, 
and they tried to select for them. So you could do this firefighting strategy, protect the threatened habitats that are already degraded, or you can go into a pre- preemptive strategy where you protect those currently less threatened habitats and they face increasing pressures. Mm. Often, often it's the latter. Anyway, the research they did suggested that the threat selection strategy, you should probably pick a bit of both. <laughs> You should absolutely go into those high threat areas that are degraded, mm. that have had some impact on them. They don't look as pretty. They're possibly not as easy because of the politics and the economics and the social um, in, in some areas. But if you pick both of those, if you pick elements from both of those areas, you're more likely to actually get the marine the environment that is protected. Mm. So it's an actual experiment. It mm. was a really interesting yeah, so piece of with real bits of yeah. land, yep. like with real, so real the ocean, bits of the ocean. Sorry, real yep. of the ocean. Yeah, well, fantastic. Well, I mean, I guess it, it all certainly will come back to what your purpose for those marine parks is, exactly. most certainly as well. And so that's sort of where you will, de- you will uh, develop your criteria on whether they're you know working or not. Um, but certainly, when it comes to something like biodiversity conservation, which is, I guess, what was I guess one of the pillar stones of one of of it depends. Yeah. So if you're conserving biodiversity. Um, do you just go for the one with the highest biodiversity and make sure you don't lose them? Or, and this is what we're doing, do you go for the one that actually has less biodiversity because it's already been degraded and, and then, then say, work, oh, well, work can we work to improve it, exactly. that? Can we improve that biodiversity? Because you're only going to get improvements if you work on the degraded areas. You're not going to get any improvements if you work on the ones that are, uh, that are spot you know, on. spot on. So, yeah. And I so when they did that, when they did that, they, they looked at both those areas and they did this big analysis and there's all kind of graphs in it and, you know, all these um, sample sizes, et cetera. It turns out that really the best outcome was a bit of both. Yeah, okay. was actually biting off both. Yeah, and now I'm going to jump to Chile. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look to f- sustainable fisheries management in Chile yep. because, as you said, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Yep. So here's a really interesting one in Chile. They have these things called turf programs, right? Well, they're obviously not turf because it's in Spanish, but <laughs> in English it, be, it, it translates to territorial user rights for fisheries or uh-huh. turf. Yep. I don't know why, but they love these acronyms in this kind of <laughs> literature. Anyway, and so in Chile, what they've done is that <clears throat> these turfs are areas where local when I say local, I mean, you know, it could be a local port, you know, industry size. It's not just artisanal fishermen with little rowboats. Um, actually have some control over a territory. So, therefore, they're partly in control over what fish are... Well, they are in control over what fish are taken from that area and they have rights that they can trade or they can manage. Okay. And so, anyway, um, what the idea is that you are... The idea is that you give those rights to these groups and then it can lead to real benefits for the environment. The idea is that marine species abundance can be higher in these areas than areas with open access to fishing. Because mm, okay. there's stewardship by those exactly. who do... Who do Local yeah, fishers, they're invested in it. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. However, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so these guys, um, which is from the University of Queensland and uh, a university in Chile that I can't say the name of, I apologise, to the University <laughs> in Chile, they did this work and they basically went... It doesn't work if the local fishers don't have that sense of stewardship, mm-hmm. if they don't have that sense of actually enforcing the compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically suggest that you're really not... You're, you're pretty much, mm. unless you have this, this enforcement follow-up, you may as well not bother mm. having these rights. Yep. And it turns out when they found out, on average, the fishers' surveys choose not to enforce because they think the government policing of these marine areas and punishment is ineffective. Mm. So they won't even make the phone call, even though they know they have the right, even though they, they know it's their livelihood being impacted. Mm-hmm. But unless there's actually some form of enforcement happening, it just then, doesn't matter. Yeah. So they just go on and keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. So the tool works if you've got the follow-up. Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. It's a really interesting And that's a really th- interesting about usage rights, is that if you give rights to, to groups to, to manage something, then, um, you know, how... You just don't leave it there. Yeah, you, you, you just don't, you, yeah, exactly. You don't yeah. leave it there because also, because short-term politics often, um, or the politics of, the, of that group or, or whoever they, whoever they interact with will often, um, often win out and that they will just, you know, sure, we've got the right, but we, we still take it now and we won't actually look to the future. So, yeah, that's... Mm. Anyway, keep going. And the last little one, in the last couple of minutes before the doctors, they're all lining up with their stethoscopes, banging on the window. Um, This was a a kind of a a really global look at how well the the network of marine protected areas is is evolving globally. And it goes to some of your your questions, your comments before about, you know, what are you protecting things for? Anyway, jump jump back a little bit uh, um, in eight. Aichi? 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 No, Aichi in Japan. In 2010, the global community established targets for the um, Convention on Biological Diversity to set aside 10% of the Earth's oceans with an emphasis on areas of particular importance for biodiversity, so under some form of protection or management. It's known as the Aichi target, 11. 10%, yep. 10%. Um, And it's supposed to meet it by 2020. We're going there, but unfortunately there's no baseline to measure how well the species are. So there are some species that are being really well covered. So... Uh, sharks, surprisingly, have got quite good coverage, mm-hmm. um, but uh, mammals don't. Corals um, would. Do they have a good coverage? Reptiles coral? do not. Okay. Corals do, yes. Corals do. Yeah. They have quite good coverage. Arthropods, those things like crabs, etc. No. So when yeah. you look across the world, there's a real kind of diversity in, oh, whoops, biodiversity that is being mm. protected by mm. these areas. And what they're saying is that most marine species are not well represented within this global it's not just a story of lots more bigger ones. Yep. It's actually a story of quality. Yes. It's the shorthand. So mm-hmm. if you're going to plan these things, you want to plan them so that you've got this quality of coverage across the world in possibly smaller target areas to cover the biodiversity. If biodiversity is your outcome, mm. you want lots of ones that cover on the breadth of biodiversity as opposed mm. to just, you know, 10% of really big ones because this stunning figure... Or 10% of just coral. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's spot on. Hey, you're on Radio Marinara. We are getting ready to wind down. Been a big show. It has been. We've covered... Uh, what have we covered? We're <sighs> diving, getting ready for spring. Yeah, we've covered fish and how we're going to feed the world. God damn it. I know. <laughs> big questions. Big questions. How are we going to protect the protect the marine life and biodiversity? And the I mean, decisions you make uh, and the trade offs you make when you're doing that. Yeah. Huge. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to Friday, 26 degrees. <laughs> you know, people are going to hold us to that. Now. We've been talking about that all the time. Uh, it's going to be 26 or not. That's what we're being told. Um, I think Bron's back next week, and uh, maybe Doctor Beach. Maybe there's a whole bunch of action-packed show, stuff. and we will uh, we'll see you then. Thanks to Oliver Edwards for coming in. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Anth. See ya. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. Hi, this is uh, Triple R's own Adam Elliott. I'm responsible for Harvey Crumbett and uh, God bless you all. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? 
check out our website at rrr.org.au.